It's like being a kid in the candy store, but you just literally found out candy exists. And then you get to go to a candy store as a kid. So, so that's what it felt like for me as God rebuilt my faith with just all these great, uh, just pillars of knowledge that I got to learn from. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm excited to welcome you to a very special episode of the pod. Our hosts today will be Ann Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, Eliza Koch, who attends Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Rolinda Greger from my own parish, Grace Anglican in Louisville. We're also welcoming a guest to the Stand Firm podcast today, the multi-talented Elisa Childers. Elisa is probably best known as an accomplished singer-songwriter and the winner of a Dove Award. There's far more, though. In addition, she hosts a popular podcast, and her website, elisachilders.com, is the home of wonderful writing and work on apologetics, theology, culture, and worship. Of course, in my house, we think of her first and foremost as a movie star, for the central and wide-ranging interviews she gives in the highly, highly recommended American gospel films, especially the second one, subtitled Christ Crucified, all about what the cross of Christ really means and accomplished for us. And now, as if all that wasn't enough, she's written a great book called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Alisa, I'm going to turn the reins over to Anne, Liza, and Rolinda here, but please know it's a great joy and honor to have you on Stand Firm. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, Nick. Um, this is our second, I mean, we went straight from just uh, talking to each other to the big time, I think. So <laughs> uh, I'm so excited. Uh, Nick didn't say that one of the best and most important things about Elisa is that she's my favorite apologist and favorite writer, and not just because she quoted me in this fantastic and wonderful book, but um, also because the book itself is just so good. I wrote a while ago that it's the book that I wished we'd had in the Episcopal Church when we began to have our little Anglican troubles. And all Christians everywhere should pay attention to it because uh, we in the Anglican world uh, are a byword. We, we should be a cautionary tale to everyone. And what happened to us is really well laid out and documented theologically anyway in this book, Another Gospel. I keep wanting to hold it up, but nobody's going to see my face, thank goodness, so I won't do that. Uh, so we we have a whole lot of questions, probably more than we could, that you could possibly answer for us, um, or you're, you'll spend the whole day with us, which would be cool. Uh, so we'll try to keep on task, but if you also just want to talk about things that you want to talk about, that's fine too. Otherwise, we're going to drive you. We have we have an avalanche of uh, <laughs> questions. So the first thing we want to know is how you came, you do talk about this in the book, but how you came to write this book and uh, what happened to you um, in the church that was the, the cause for bringing this book into the world ultimately. Well, okay, before I answer that question, I do have to say it's a double joy for me to be here. Uh, Thank you for those kind words, Anne. And I just have to say right back at you, and I've said this publicly on Twitter before, that Anne Kennedy is my favorite writer. So there's lots of love going around the room right now. Uh, And then the double joy is that I love uh, Anglicans. And so I'm, I'm technically a Southern Baptist, but I always tell people I'm Southern Baptist, but I identify as Anglican. So I'm kind of in there in that world somewhere. So I love uh, being here with you, with you all. So the the impetus behind the book, uh, essentially, I never thought that I would ever write a book. I didn't even think of myself as a writer, a uh, songwriter. Certainly, I was in the music business, and so I would write songs and performed with singing and, and things like that. But I never thought I would ever write a book. I never thought I'd even have a blog or anything like that. But uh, essentially, what happened was after uh, my musical group that I was in, kind of retired when we came off the road. We all were married by that point and we had starting to have children. 
And so I was invited to sing some solo music at a local church that was just marketed as a non-denominational, uh, just kind of your run-of-the-mill evangelical church right here in the, the heart of Middle Tennessee where, I, where my husband and I live. And so I went and did some music there and we just fell in love with this church. We fell in love with the pastor and the people. We loved the sense of community we found there. And so we actually began attending this church and um, my husband and I were both really intrigued by the intellectual approach to the sermons that the pastor did. I mean, this guy used more scripture than almost any pastor I'd ever heard in my life. And we just, we loved it. So about eight months in, uh, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller uh, type of study group. And he compared it to seminary. He said, if you go through this four-year class that I'm offering, you will come out on the other side with this seminary level education. And so I was really excited about that because as far back as I can remember, I've loved Jesus. I've loved reading the Bible, always did my best to live my life by the word of God. And I just knew the Bible was the word of God. And so I was really excited to essentially get to dig deeper on that. Um, but what ended up happening, and you know, if you want, we can drill down in more detail, but the overarching story of what happened was the pastor actually revealed that he was agnostic. And so the class was less of a deep dive Bible study that I thought it was going to be. And it was really more like him walking us through his own deconstruction. And so we would read, uh, progressive books. Of course, I hadn't heard that phrase yet. We read books by liberal Christians. We read books by non-Christians. And basically, the, this, the thrust of the class seemed to be sort of questioning everything I'd ever believed and, and really picking those things apart and deconstructing them. And so uh, we ended up leaving the church after about four months of that. And that is when all of those doubts he planted really took root and began to grow. And I went through my own sort of dark night of the soul deconstruction instruction. And I'm just so thankful because God used apologetics and just studying church history and theology and all of these things I'd never really studied before uh, to help rebuild my faith back to what I call a historic Christian faith. And so um, I'm just super, really thankful for that. But that's the overarching story. So essentially the book is my story of walking through that. Now, the reason the book addresses progressive Christianity is because this church that I was in, the class that I was in, the pastor and the church years later went on to completely rebrand. Uh, they took the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they put up a new one that they'd written themselves. And, it, it, and so that's when I first heard that phrase, progressive Christianity. And so I tell my story in the book. So it's walking the reader through the story and all the questions that came up and where I found answers, but essentially it's answering that movement of progressive Christianity because I realize now that's what was happening. A church was going from evangelical to progressive and I was sort of in the inner circle of it. And so uh, I wanted to address that for people who might be going through something similar. Dying to know what church it was. Oh, well, I've never really said the name of the church publicly because I don't, I just don't want to give platform to it. I don't want to draw attention to and give my audience to that, to, to that pastor who still is a pastor and still is, you know, deceiving people and leading them away from historic Christianity. I'll, ha I'll be happy to tell you off the air. I mean, there are people who know, but, mm -hmm. but one thing that, that is interesting about the church is that after we left, they, they continued on for several years, like six, seven years, just slowly bringing people along to this, the pastor was doing that, bringing people along to this progressive ideology, but there were still a lot of more conservative Christians in the church. And so seven years or so after we left, the pastor got up one morning and basically announced that they were going to be performing gay weddings and they were going to be LGBT inclusive, which came as a quite a shock to half the church that was leaning more on the conservative side. Because remember, he wasn't like saying on Sunday mornings, all the things he was saying in the smaller class that I was in. So it kind of split the church. So the church went from, oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand people down to about 500. Then a, a while after that, they had a second split where the assistant pastor and the pastor kind of split off uh, just through some different ideologies that they had. And so the church, as far as I understand, I don't know if it's still in, in existence. If it is, it's very small. I think it's just down to a couple families, if anything. So it doesn't really, the church itself doesn't have much influence anymore. Um, but yeah, so. Well, thank God that it doesn't have influence. Mm -hmm. You know, we, the three of us came from the Episcopal church and 
probably, well, I don't know what percent of our listeners, but um, a lot of them. And we went through that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we went through in various churches, we went through the same thing, the slow change. Was that um, class, was that class by invitation only or was it kind of a select group or or did he just have it? Yeah, it was by invitation only and it was very exclusive. In fact, in the class we were told that we were not going to tell people outside of the class what we discussed inside the class. Uh, So it was sort of this closed, private, inner circle type group that was processing some of these questions. And I write about this in the book. In one of the first classes, I remember the pastor looking at the, you know, I don't know, I think when we started, we might have had like maybe 15 or so. And I remember him looking at everybody and saying, you're here because you are in some way peculiar and use the word peculiar. And I just remember thinking, what? <laughs> like, why, why am I here? I don't feel like I'm that peculiar. I'm pretty, you know, I, I really believed in the gospel. There was nothing like that. I, th- I wasn't questioning the things that other people in the class were questioning. The class is actually what caused me to question, but apparently some other people there had expressed some of these similar types of questions that he was processing. So this was a very exclusive and private group. So Did you see anything else in the, the church that was troubling, like teaching in the children's ministry or had that just not happened yet? None of that had happened yet. Now, later Mm -hmm. I did. Um, I, in fact, I I heard, uh, well, in fact, their children's pastor years, years later after I had left and they were kind of more openly progressive, um, their children's pastor wrote articles that basically tried to help parents with navigating their kids through Easter, because apparently that's a really horrific idea. Jesus' death and resurrection is a really horrific idea in the progressive church. Uh, they don't like the idea that Jesus died for our sins. So how do we, how do we talk to our kids about this? And so um, it, it all became very progressive after. But I think when I was there, I mean, I remember we sang in Christ alone in worship one morning, which I think back about that now, and, and they would never sing that now. And, um, you know, I remember them singing uh, Jesus Loves Me one morning, and I, but the worship leader kind of made a disclaimer, like we're, we're singing this um, just to kind of honor the tradition and, and this and that. And, and then I heard later they even changed Amazing Grace. They took out the word wretch. And so there, there was a lot of slow changes that, that were kind of being made. But when I would listen to his sermons on Sunday mornings, I was this, he was a master at saying things that you could apply to different foundational filters. So if you're, if you believe in the atonement of Jesus, if you believe um, in the original sin and then second coming of Jesus, you could interpret what he said through that lens, but you could also interpret it through a different lens, which I realize now that he, he was very good at the double use of language. I'm listening to uh, that hideous strength again which I read at the first, when we were, when we were in the middle of our denominational chaos and the, the double use of language prevarication, meaning a little bit of something to everyone is mm-hmm. so, uh, of course, as you go along, language does come to have very fixed meaning, but as things are being deconstructed, the language is really, you know, it sounds pretty gracious, but then it just, it gets, less and less meaningful and then suddenly you find actually that it did have meaning it just wasn't what you thought it was yeah yeah it's there's the the double use of language is what was so such a stark reality that I was living in it's like they would use words like atonement they would use words like uh, divinely inspired and even using words like hell and heaven meaning completely different things by those words than I had traditionally been you know taught to understand those words to mean those those very common yeah I loved the well I loved a lot of things that you go over in the book specifically with with all the things that all the questions that were brought up so much deconstruction and then as you were trying to put everything back together for yourself but one of the things that you're talking about now that I really loved was how you emphasize Jesus in in wrestling with the devil ever both using scripture and so it's not just about having the bible around or even using the bible it's a battle of interpretation mm, yeah. and that, that really stuck out to me because like Melinda said we've been in the Episcopal church and 
we've felt the water getting hotter and hotter as the language was getting, it's a sort of hard to nail down. Like, what do you mm -hmm. mean by that? What do you mean? And, and the, um, what was always kind of levied back at us was that if we were trying to nail it down too much, if we were, if we were trying to fight the battle of interpretation, then we were somehow being unkind or intolerant or, um, just caring too much about the details. You know, what was most important was to be like Christ and loving our neighbor and not fuss so much about mm. interpretation. But what I loved is your emphasis on how actually that's exactly what matters because none of it means the same thing at all unless you're talking about the meaning, the correct meaning or the right meaning of the words that you're using. Yeah, it's an interesting point about that story, isn't it? Because you have Jesus, of course, appealing to the authority of the scriptures when he's fighting that temptation. But then you also have the devil quoting scripture and actually quoting it correctly. He's actually, he's not mixing the words up. He's not, you know, adding something that wasn't there or taking away. He's, he's actually quoting it correctly, but the implied meaning that he's using when he's using the scripture is not what it meant. And I think that that was so interesting when I was reading that because this guy, this pastor knew scripture better than anybody I knew. I mean, he knows the Bible front to back. And I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, um, the devil's a, be, a better theologian than than most of us, and he's a devil still. And I think that the I probably that's just a paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. But I think that is a good point because people just you know we always talk about biblical illiteracy, which is a big problem. We do need to know our Bibles better, but there is also this issue of twisting what's actually there because I think that's what we see more often. That's a more subtle and more persuasive deception than just not knowing what the Bible says. And that's, that's what I encountered in this church quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the specific beliefs that you had going into the class that you had just sort of assumed were true, that were challenged in the class and like what arguments the pastor used to come at you and to try to dismantle those? Growing up, you know, I didn't really, I mean, I grew up in a Christian environment. I went to Christian schools, went to church, but my parents always had us out exposed to other worldviews and exposed to people who were less fortunate. We did a lot of homeless work. I worked with drug addicts and prostitutes growing up. So it's not like I never met an atheist, you know, like it's not like I never met somebody spewing vitriol against God on Hollywood Boulevard when we would be doing street evangelism or something like that. But none of that ever rattled me because because I just thought, well, they just don't believe the Bible's true. If they're saying this about, uh, you know, say evolution or something, it's just because they don't, they don't believe the Bible's true. And one day, you know, when the Holy Spirit works on their heart, they'll see that the Bible is the word of God. So that settled every argument for me really until I was in this class. So when this pastor was able to intellectually persuade me that the Bible wasn't actually reliable, you know, he, I had never heard of textual criticism or variants or how the manuscripts were copied. And when he pointed out that, hey, there's, did you know, there's like 400,000 differences between all the manuscripts we have just for the New Testament. How, how on earth could you think this is reliable? Um, that is the kind of stuff that shook me harder than anything, because then other things he would say in regard to doctrines like original sin, which he denied, uh, you know, the blood atonement of Jesus, which he denied, all of that was sort of built upon the view of the Bible. And when those legs got knocked out from under me. I think that's when the, the serious, really dark doubt came because I based my whole life and everything I believed about God on that book. And so all of these foundational core beliefs of Christianity um, were called into question when he was able to, and I say intellectually persuade me because my heart still knew the truth. So that was kind of in this cognitive dissonance, like my mind was persuaded because he was so smart and so eloquent and uh, just a brilliant communicator, very smart guy. Uh, and, and yet my heart knew there has to be some, an answer to this. There has to be more. So it was just this real, it was torment really just between my mind and my heart, I think. Was, so you were married at that time, right? You mentioned that you and your husband went to the church. Was your husband able to help you? Had he thought through any of these questions? Did you have friends that had thought through these things before or were you on your own? Well, I was on my own intellectually. Now I had a lot of support from great Christians like my parents, my husband, friends. I, you know, now I didn't 
you know, I didn't understand what was happening to me at the time. So it's not like I went around to my friends saying, hey, I'm doubting my faith. I don't know what to do. I didn't want to cause anyone else to doubt their faith. So I didn't really share that with a lot of people because I didn't want to bring them down. So I was really alone in a lot of it. And I didn't know any Christians who could intellectually answer the, the things the pastor was bringing up. Now, my husband was just a champ. You know, he's a very simple guy. So he's not, uh, he's not like going to drill down on the nuance of everything like I tend to do, uh, which is actually a really good thing because he just remained completely solid the whole time. I would come home after class and be like, you won't believe what they said this week. And I would just, you know, talk his ear off. And, and he was very compassionate and just helped me kind of stay solid. But what's interesting is he's really the reason we left. And I'm thankful because there was about four months into the class, the pastor invited the spouses to come to the class just to kind of see what it was about. Because again, this, remember, this is very exclusive, very private. So we didn't have, you know, people coming from the outside to visit. So the spouses came. And I just remember my husband sitting fairly quietly through the whole class. And then we got in the car and he said, we're done. You're done with the class. We're not raising our, we had a, one daughter at the time. He said, we're not raising our daughter here. And I can't tell you the wave of relief that came over me because I think I was hanging on because there were baby Christians in the class that I was worried about them becoming more deceived. And I was very confused already. And so I am, I'm just so thankful that my husband kind of made that decision. And, um, and it, who knows how much worse it could have been if, if it would have gone longer. Well, and maybe some of those baby Christians said, why did Elisa leave? Maybe there's something wrong with the class. Uh, yeah, we can I only hope. So. Hope. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so you've, you've talked, you, in the book, you highlight so many points in which we, we would disagree or differ from a progressive Christian. Um, uh, the atonement and original sin you've mentioned, we would all have a shared idea of what the gospel is for us. <laughs> what do they mean when they say this is the gospel? Yeah, and that's the that's the key question here because the biggest question I get from people is if they're going to deny basically the gospel, if they're denying the core tenets of the gospel, why do they still call themselves Christians? What's all what's that all about? And so what we have to understand about progressive Christianity is it's like it's really based on this postmodern relativistic approach to truth. So what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And so Jesus sort of becomes this mascot that applies to whatever you think is good and moral and true. You're going to say that's what Jesus would do, or that's the kind of Jesus I worship. Um, and so the gospel, when you throw out this whole overarching narrative of sin and redemption sinful humans being reconciled to a holy God and everything that goes along with that before it and after it, um, what is going to be the cause that still unites you around the name Jesus? Why would you still even invoke the name Jesus at that point? And so because most progressive Christians are at least some form of universalist, so either they're going to call themselves uh, Christocentric universalists, or another word for that would be um, universal reconciliation, where they're going to say, yeah, Jesus is the only way. He did reconcile man to himself, but he did that for everyone, whether they believe or not. So, you know, we're not going to tell the Buddhists they're wrong. We're not going to try to evangelize Hindus. So there's that kind of mindset going on. So, so with this evangelistic zeal that Christians have typically had, because we want our friends to be reconciled to God, that's put aside. And so what becomes the gospel is largely a works-based gospel. It's really not about what you believe. It's about what you do. And so that gets defined largely by whatever social justice cause the culture is sort of on at the moment, which is why... You know, a few years ago, if you were going to be accepted in the progressive Christian church, you would have to be actively advocating for LGBT inclusion. Like that was the main big cause. And it still is a big one. But then, of course, in the last year or so, that's been co-opted with uh, racial reconciliation and racial justice as defined by the world, not defined in a biblical way, not biblical justice, but justice as it's defined according to the world, which, of course, is going to um, uh, include critical race 
theory and viewing everyone through this lens of oppressed versus oppressor. So we see that language now coming a lot uh, from the progressive church. So it's essentially the gospel, the heart of the gospel moves from sin and redemption, which by the way, in case I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, will produce works of fruit in your life. You will want to care for the poor if you have uh, put your trust in Jesus. You will have compassion for those who are oppressed and, and want to do what you can to stand up for people who are being mistreated and oppressed. Um, but in the progressive paradigm that, as defined by culture, not the Bible, becomes the core gospel. So you have to be um, advocating for these causes. Oh, that, that would be the sort of gospel in the progressive church. Yeah, I feel like there's an end, there's the capacity to sort of endlessly circle around two different gospels. Um, that's why I love the title of the book. But, you know, as progressivism has sort of deconstructed everything and is putting everything back together, it's been really interesting to watch how what they've landed on as their big new thing is mm -hmm. really like a great burden like a huge, mm. a huge pile of work. Yes. Uh, it's a work that will get you loved by everyone right now, but it's still a lot to do. You just, yeah. there's a long, long list of stuff you've got to do and say and think. And um, it's just, yeah. it's been interesting, you know, it's sort of comforting in a sick sort of way that they didn't come, they didn't come up with anything interesting yeah um, no it's true which, i think that's fair <laughs> you know it's the age old you might as well go back to the first century if you're going to you know go be a go be a judaizer if that's what you yeah right uh, it, it's more interesting probably to do some of the older works that um you know, that have been left aside by the gospel, mm -hmm. <laughs> a new one for right now, which does change all the time. Well, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about starting back together. I just, this not totally off topic, but I, I did love your podcast about Ravi Zacharias. Um, and, you know, that's just a whole kettle of fish, mm -hmm. um, tragic kettle of fish. Um, but I, I, you said that he, you, you listened to him. He was really helpful to you. Um, I found that to be true as I've, you know, tried to cling to the gospel, um, orthodox faith that I've been helped along by people who, eh, you know, yeah. weren't always, they didn't end up being totally wonderful. But um, anyway, tell yeah. us how you put it, because that's in the book was so helpful. You, you do the deconstruction, you know, what, what they did, but really then you give the reader to, to put it back together. You don't have to be left that way. So, but how did that go for you? Well, I just remember sitting in my rocking chair one night with rocking my toddler and just crying out into this dark, what felt like just this empty, dark void. I, I was questioning at this point, I felt like I could just feel God floating away from me in a, in a sense. My belief in God was fading. And I remember just crying out to God and saying, okay, God, if you're real, if, if all of this is true, you have got to send me a lifeboat because I felt like I was drowning in doubt with just waves of doubt crashing over my head. And uh, I remember just, I don't know how much time went by, but I remember sitting in my car or I was driving and I was listening to the radio kind of flipping around and I heard this voice and I describe the voice in my book as this kind of grandfatherly, kind, calm voice that was answering all these skeptical questions on a college campus. And they were almost in order, the questions that we had been processing in the class. And, but this was the first time I heard somebody knowledgeable who was kind of coming to a different conclusion than the people in the class had. And so I was incredibly intrigued. I mean, it was just, I was like, who is this person? I have got to find out who this person was. And so they announced that it was Ravi Zacharias. So I downloaded his app and began to listen to his little 15 minute broadcast every day, I think for a year before I did anything else. Um, and yeah, so, so the sort of twist on that now is that I, I just put out a video when your lifeboat springs a leak, because of course there's been this uh, huge scandal with Ravi where it turns out that he was engaging in all kinds of sexual misconduct, uh, predatory, ongoing, unrepentant. Apparently it really seems like he, he 
as far as we know, was unrepentant even to his death. Um, so I have a video on that. If people want to go to YouTube, my, my channel is YouTube slash Elisa Childers. You can, you can hear my thoughts on that. Uh, but, but, you know, the truth, no matter, no matter what ha was going on in Robbie's life, the words he spoke, God used those, and that's true. And so that was part of my journey. And through that, I discovered a seminary that I got connected with. And that, I, that was a huge portion of my reconstruction was just getting connected with the seminary and taking classes and just annoying the professors with all my questions. And through that, finding more resources and more apologists. And I just became insatiable for knowledge. I began to just read everything I could get my hands on. Uh, of course, when it first started, my kids at this point were teeny tiny, so I couldn't sit down and actually read very much. I'd listen all the time, just podcasts, lectures, audiobooks, whatever, and and just read, 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 and listen, listen. And, um, and God really, rebuilt my faith that way and I was honestly if I'm honest I was like okay if I find enough to to justify the gospel then I'll be satisfied with that because I thought the gospel was so beautiful um but what I discovered was so much more than that not only was it enough it was overwhelming it was like it just dwarfed the questions the answers that i discovered the rich depth of the intellectual tradition that we've had for 2000 years in the church that i was completely unaware of um by the way i don't know the, i guess the stream i grew up in just didn't didn't lean that way but um it was just like it, i think in the book i say it's like uh being a kid in the candy in a candy store but you just literally found out candy exists and then you get to go to a candy store as a kid. So, so that's what it felt like for me as God rebuilt my faith with just all these great, uh, just pillars of knowledge that I got to learn from. That's so, that's so encouraging. Uh, and also enraging to me, the cultural, whether well, it's, it's so easy, it's so um, easy to be totally lazy and just think that it's enough to ask all the questions. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, Having grown up in the Episcopal Church, but even in the, you know, went to a conservative Baptist boarding school. So we were big on a lot of content of the Christian, a lot of con Bible content, lots and lots of Bible memory, um, sword drills. Uh, knowing your Bible was a really, really big deal, but uh, in many cases, it was enough to just stop there. You know, like you, you fill your head full of the Bible, but you don't have this overarching sense of the narrative of scripture on the one hand, but also the idea that all of the answers of the universe are answered, or all the questions of the universe are answered in God. There's an answer. You don't just ask the question over and over and over again. I mean, that's mm -hmm. uh, foolish. And I think, but it's, it's, it's so easy, you know, yeah. so pro progressivism, I mean, I'm probably being mean here, but it's not, uh, very rigorous. It doesn't go that deep. If you really wanted to know, you could discover the truth. And so that that's the the, the witness of how you did that. Mm. I found to be incredibly encouraging because it is also the narrow way. As we watched in our denomination, you know, people just settle for stuff that was sort of half-baked Mm -hmm. um, it, it was frustrating to not be satisfied with that. And, um, I, I, one thing I know, I know you do apologetics with young people, young kids, um, younger teenagers. Um, when I went away to college, my dad, um, made me read, um, Marcus Borg. <clears throat> wow. And Luke Timothy Johnson. Um, and I don't know, all the, this Jesus seminar, people where you had to do the little um, colored beads. Mm. He made me read that with him before oh. I went away. And mm. that was this saving for me because I would have gone to college. I went to a secular college and then I went to an Episcopal seminary and I would have had my faith deconstructed and I would have, and this sort the warm glow of being included in something mm. really special would have then enough to, you know, push back the darkness of reality. And um, so yeah. I'm just, you're, the way you go through that in a book, the book, I think is a strength of it and why people should read it because 
um, you should consider these things. It, you should wonder about whether the Bible is reliable. Did Jesus really die? Did he really exist? Did he rise again? Um, what, you know, what are the truth claims of the other side? Are they fair? And if you don't, you know, I think most, most Christians, and you can see because the church is sort of crumbling very, very quickly, um, haven't been curious enough to find out, even with yeah. a Google search. Yeah. Um, that's powerful, uh, Anne, because, you know, you're preaching the message of that we talk about in our Mama Bear Apologetics book. You know, I mean, think about how, I, I don't know, if I was your dad, I'd be terrified to have my kid read Mar Marcus Borg. But what a wise decision, because he, you, you do that in the safety and the covering of your own home. You can process it with your kids. And, and you're, you know, that insulated you from going off to college and hearing all of these kind of enticing ideas for the first time. Like you said, the warm glow of that feeling included in this new club that's like, you know, edgy and, and we're, we're rejecting what our parents said and that kind of stuff. And I think that that's such a valuable piece of advice for parents that, you know, we, we, we have to be the ones to actually introduce these skeptical ideas to our kids. Uh, I've tried to do that even with my daughter as she's 12, just little cultural things here and there. Hey, have you heard about this? And what do people say about it? Well, let's, let's look in you know, what reality says about it. What does the Bible say about it? How does this line up with, you know, with reality? And I have found that she's, engages with ideas with a lot less fear, I think, than because I didn't really have that. Of course, I don't blame my parents. They couldn't have foreseen the internet that, you know, didn't even exist when I was in high school. It's interesting how, I mean, it, I guess it's not, it's not too hard to find the truth. It is very hard to find the truth, but the lies um, are, are sort of easily debunked if you take the time and the trouble, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> well, and you have to want truth. That's the yeah, thing too, because yeah. you kind of alluded to this with, there's a whole different worldview with progressive Christianity. The point is not to land on truth. That's not the point. In fact, if you land on truth, if you say, okay, I had this question, I read this position and this position, and I considered all of the evidence and all of the different arguments and counter arguments, and here's where I've settled, you know, that makes you you're viewed as, as immature, as less enlightened, um, that you're viewed as small-minded because you've kind of got this real narrow view of something. Whereas in progressive Christianity, the point is not to figure out what you believe Jesus did when he died on the cross, essentially. The point is to find the next best question, to keep asking questions, to keep this open mind, to, um, to remain open-minded to what everybody might say about it and to never really land on on a secure or position is certainly you wouldn't want to say interesting. It's so ironic that I just said, certainly you would never want to be certain <laughs> because that's probably the one thing they are certain about is that you shouldn't be certain, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you don't, the point is not to land on a position. The point is to remain open-minded and keep considering what everybody else has to say. And so it sort of creates this. And I, I think you may be the first person I heard use this phrase and um, it creates this culture of doubt. And so doubt actually becomes a virtue rather than a problem to be solved. And so it, it's sort of just this radically different way of approaching the world. And so I think people have to understand that when you're, when you're looking at progressive Christians who just don't seem to ever land, that's because that's kind of the point. That's, that's true. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's really um, terrible. It's, it's yeah. terrible. What comes to mind? What came to my mind as you were talking, Lisa, was when, when in the Bible it says, you know, for like a verse like for freedom, Christ has set you free. Well, they would see that as freedom from having to have a, a adhere to a particular doctrine, freedom from mm. being bound right. by believing certain things that you know our primitive forefathers believed, but now we're free from, right? Because mm -hmm. we're in and the whole the whole idea. I mean, what's implied and what even often said is that if you do land the plane, if you do adhere to a doctrine, especially if it's a traditional Christian one, then you're, you're not as intellectually, you know, viable as yeah. somebody who um, is just still questioning. And that's just such yeah. a reverse from, I mean, millennia of, 
ideas about wisdom where like yeah. you have something to offer someone else other than just more questions. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times in the comment section of my blog or on Twitter or Facebook or any of these other places where everybody can communicate with you now. I can't tell you how many times a progressive Christian has come on and said, you know, you just haven't done the work yet. You know, one of these days you're going to get there. You know, you're, you're still in this sort of infancy, immature phase of your, of your spiritual walk. And when you kind of want to step out into the light, we'll be here for you. But the implication is just, you know, you, uh, and you know, they'll say this to me, like almost like they pity me. Like you, you just haven't, you just haven't done the work yet. And once you do, Yeah, bless your heart. And so I always love to say, well, what what makes you assume that because I haven't landed, I mean, it's so dogmatic. It's like, so you're assuming that because I don't agree with you, that I just haven't done the work. I mean, that's pretty close-minded and dogmatic if you ask me. That is so true. Um, You know, I I went on your um, YouTube channel and uh, and actually uh, Anne's husband, Matt, posted... uh, your interview nine months ago about the new apostolic reformation that was really awesome. And you have all these uh, videos and podcasts that I, I highly recommend uh, to, for people to check out. But I was wondering, you know, of all the things you addressed in the book back then, and then, you know, how things change and how, more false teaching comes out. What would you, if you could get an something to the book or um, expand on something, what what do you see happening now that you really feel needs to be addressed? That is such a great question because, and I don't think anyone's ever asked me that, but that is a great question because. Progressive Christianity as a movement is always changing. It's, in fact, I was telling someone, I feel like my book is basically out of date now because it has changed so much just in the year or so since I finished it. Uh, So there are a few things I would add. The one thing I would add that um, I, I just didn't think of, but was still there and festering, but we're seeing it so huge right now is I have a section of the book where it talks about reasons people are walking away from uh, the evangelical church or the Christianity they grew up with. And I think one of those things we're seeing right now, I'm seeing a lot of people sort of head into a deconstruction over uh, their, their, their seeing sort of Christianity get married to a political party. And then they're seeing lack of character coming from the leader of that party. And they're questioning like, well, Jesus wouldn't act like this person, you know, and it's the Trumpism and all of this stuff that's, I think, causing, and I think there's some, there can be some misunderstandings there. Certainly not everybody who voted for Trump is part of this particular problem I'm talking about, but I think we have seen um, certain evangelicals almost have this um, religious uh, affiliation with their political party. And we see it on both sides, actually, if we're fair, of course, we're seeing it on both sides where um, we're looking to religious leaders to basically solve our world's problems, which of course, we are not of this world as Christians, we are of a different kingdom. So I think some of that, what, what people are perceiving as hypocrisy, um, that, you know, that's, that could be one of those reasons that lead them into progressive Christianity. I would probably add something about that. Um, I, I think that I I would definitely expand uh, into a whole chapter, uh, critical race theory. In fact, what's really interesting is I had already turned the book in um, and I hadn't said anything about critical theory because it was just such a, it was such a theological uh, analysis of the movement. And uh, someone wrote to me and said, I really, it was a scholar in the relevant field of critical theory. said, I really hope you'll put something in your book about critical theory because it's just sweeping up the progressive Christian church. And they're right. I mean, I saw it everywhere. All of a sudden you have Jen Hatmaker hawking, you know, fat fit fun box boxes or whatever those things are to talking about her cisgender white privilege the next day. And it's like, wow, that, that was like 
really fast how that how quickly that happened. <laughs> and so um, I was able to add a section on that, but I would expand that out into a whole chapter if I could, because that's really become like we kind of hinted at earlier the gospel for progressive Christians. This critical theory, oppressed oppressor, uh, that whole worldview has become so dominant in that world and in other you know streams as well. Uh, so I would probably add a bit more about that. I would update. I mean, some of a lot of the thought leaders have changed in the last couple of years. You know, we we're seeing it started with basically a bunch of middle-aged white guys, which, you know, is their biggest complaint about a lot of things are middle-aged white guys, but their movement started basically with a bunch of middle-aged white guys. And then it morphed to more female and and now it seems like a lot of the major voices are, we're seeing more diversity in those, which, you know, is just changing so fast. And so I'd probably update some of those names and things like that. And I would have to do a, a bit more research on that as well. Um, but yeah, so those are probably the two major things I would address. I had a question. I don't know. We had, we had a sort of an order and I've lost... Mm -hmm. I've lost where I am. I hope that's okay. But I really wanted to know, and this might be off the wall, but um, if you if you could talk to somebody walking out of the Evolving Faith, Faith Conference and you knew that they would listen to you, like they weren't going to blow you off, they would actually take you seriously, what would you, like, what would be your pitch? Mm. Maybe, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I've, I've asked myself that question. I don't yeah. know what I would say. So I thought I think might have that, a good answer. Yeah, man. I mean, I think that if someone were walking out of the Evolving Faith Conference, which for anyone listening, if you're not familiar, it's sort of the, the, prog the big progressive Christian conference that was started a few years ago by Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie. Um, uh, in, if, if there was openness, you're saying, if they, they would be open to hearing what I might have to say, I think that I would probably ask, you know, um, it's really important, especially somebody coming out of a conference like that, because you have in that conference, you're going to have a mix of people. You're going to have people who don't realize how far the progressive theology has gone. They might still believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they're there because they've been hurt or they've witnessed hypocrisy or some kind of moral failing. You know, they, their mind was blown by Ravi Zacharias. So they went to evolving faith, but they don't realize, you know, the end game. So that would be one set of questions I would ask, you know, there'd be another I mean, then, of course, you have like the whole liturgist crowd, which, of course, at the liturgist conference, which, you know, some of those people are affiliated with Evolving Faith, you have a self-proclaimed sex witch leading worship where she's worshiping herself. You know, I, she's singing mm -hmm. songs about God becoming human. And I, I asked her on Facebook directly who were, was she was singing to at that conference. And she answered me and she said she was singing to herself and her body. So you literally have those extremes that all could be walking out of the evolving. I think the first thing I would ask is, why are you here? That would be the first question. And then try to do a bit of diagnosis, um, what, what they're walking away from, why, what, uh, what was it about their Christian upbringing that they that, that they're reacting against and maybe kind of address that point. If it's more theological, like I just think that Christians are getting Jesus wrong, that's a great opportunity to ask, well, what do you think about, you know, what Jesus said about the Bible and see how they answer. And you might open up an opportunity to show them the dozens and dozens of places where Jesus refers to the Old Testament as the word of God. You know, it's very clear that the Evolving Faith Conference general speakers are not going to agree with Jesus on what the Bible even is. And so that might be, you know, are, are you, do you consider yourself a Jesus follower? What do you think about what he said about the Bible? Would be a great first question to maybe sort of get somebody thinking who's, who's leaving that atmosphere. That might be where I would start. That's good. That's better than my, my option of just screaming and like calling down fire from heaven. Yeah. like Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> Scream. Screaming is always an option though. <laughs> well, that's what I, that's what people do online. So I don't know, confronted with a real person, what I would, yeah. what I would do in real life. Yeah. So no, that's what's really that? good. Yeah. What's that? What's real life? Do you have any thoughts for people um, who see their church changing or see some of these ideas coming in? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say, number one, don't panic because 
sometimes a drift starts and it can, and the church will right the ship. Um, sadly, that's not what happens most often. Most often you see that drift and then, you know, people start making little compromises. Maybe a pastor gets hired on staff who has some of these ideas. He starts, you know, preaching some of these ideas, but the other pastors don't, you know, because they have relationship or whatever, they don't want to either fire him or correct him. And so then that starts infecting, you know, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, essentially. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that, that what we all have to do as Christians, first of all, is always be willing to, I've seen so many people stay in churches that have gone fully progressive because of their friendships. And I think that's something to really be aware of. We have to, as Jesus said, we have to be willing to put the truth of the gospel. We have to put Jesus before our friends. We have to put it before our own families. I mean, even Jesus said, I, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He predicted even families would divide over mm -hmm. truth, over, over the gospel. So we have to be willing, first of all, to, to make a stand, even if we lose friendships. I have lots of friends who have made that stand and lost all their friends, you know, over this in progressive churches. So we have to be, first of all, willing to put the gospel, to put Jesus first. Uh, the second thing I would say is, is you have to speak up. If you're seeing some of these ideas being preached from your pulpit or even in your small group, small groups are a huge way some of this stuff gets in because it's less... Uh, policed in a sense. It's less, maybe sometimes it's less um, organized and, you know, maybe they're not all following the same curriculum. And then these conversations can happen where there's not maybe a theologically sound person there to guide it. Um, so you have to speak up. You can't just let it go by and share your concerns, share your heart, come alongside your pastor as a friend and as somebody who's supporting him and who has his back to where you're, you're not just attacking, but you're saying, look, I, I'm concerned about this. This doesn't reconcile with what I've seen from you. And, you know, I'm just concerned. Can you help me understand and see how that goes? Another, another really good tactic. I've said this on many podcasts because my friend did this. So a friend of mine who was at the same church I was at, she stayed years after I did. She wasn't in the small group with me. And I wasn't going to go around trying to get people to leave. So I just kind of went quietly. But we reconnected years later. And she told me that for a solid year, she kept a notebook uh, every time he would preach on a Sunday morning. And every time he said something that gave her any kind of a red flag at all, she just wrote it down. That's all she did. She just wrote down what he said. And she told me that she went back through after a year and it was very clear that they had to leave, that this was off. And sometimes those shifts are so subtle, it's hard to see just one little bit at a time. But when you write it all down in a notebook and you go back and you're like, okay, this is clear. Mm -hmm. And so I always advise that with people, don't overreact, don't panic, start taking notes, write down things that trouble you, um, but just don't let it go by. I think that would be the main advice I would have. Of course, with us Episcopalians, not only do we write it down, we put it on the internet. There you go. <laughs> I love it. It a private notebook. Um. <laughs> I would add that um, for, for um, Anglicans, depending on your church polity, you should get on committees. Like a lot of um, conservatives in our church just were busy worshiping Jesus Mm. and um, praying and, you know, caring for the sick and the poor. And they didn't have time for a vestry, which is our kind of our elder situation, you know, the leadership. They didn't want to go to diocesan convention because it was so annoying and irritating and full of so much political minutia. They didn't engage in the politics of the thing and, then they were really shocked when the whole organization had gone by them. And mm. I think so a lot of people think that it's, it's not um, very holy to get involved in the guts of an organization politically to vote, to go to the annual meeting, to um, go to small group and make relationships with people, both to be friendly, but also to know what people think mm -hmm. and then get, get involved join a ministry, pay attention, vote, um, go to the national convention, if you, whatever, however your church is structured and don't seed the ground legislatively, uh, by, by not being there. Um, it's been interesting to watch the Southern Baptists. They're, they're kind of having political battles with each other, but mm -hmm. I would say looking in from the outside, that's totally fair. Don't, you know, if you're worried 
don't give up ground. Um, don't give away the language. Don't, you should be nice, you know, be polite, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was part of the tactic of the left is to give away, like being polite is being a participate, participant in Satan's wicked works. You know, no, you should be polite, you know, don't be a jerk, but don't give up ground um, legislatively if you're in a denomination that has that kind of um, space for that. But I think, you know, people who really love Jesus and just do like to go to church and pray and worship Jesus, I mean, I think that's a really good thing. <laughs> you, may not be, you might not have that, like, fire in your belly to fight, 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 but... Um, I don't know. I think it's we need some of that. Yeah, until you can't fight anymore and it's gone, then you mm -hmm. then you leave. But um, um, I have a question. I have another question for you, if you don't mind. Um, so my husband is an ordained Anglican clergyman, like Matt is, and um, we've got lots of colleagues in the Anglican Church and some still in the Episcopal Church who have who stood firm on the homosexuality question. Um, as you know, as you mentioned, the progressive issues change, right, with time. And so the homosexuality was a big one. And these, all these people that I'm thinking of stood firm on the biblical, what biblical sexuality is back then. But now we've seen many of them, like wholeheartedly embrace critical race theory just in the last oh. year. And you know, I, I, I'm not super close with a lot of these people. It's not like I'm talking to them all the time, but I'm seeing what they're posting. And in the last year, it has become very clear that they are, they are on board with that. And that's been kind of concerning to me. Um, what do you, do you see that happening a lot? Like, what do you make of that, that sudden shift from people that like w w seemed solid before and now don't seem solid and how alarmed should I be about that? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, and that is the, man, that critical theory came in like, like a sleeping giant, didn't it? And it's mm -hmm. everywhere. It's not just Anglicans. I mean, that's what the battles we're having in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. We're seeing, we're seeing that language take over everywhere. And I think that there are some reasons for that. I think that, you know, you have people like me kind of addressing this false gospel. And you have people, like you mentioned, the New Apostolic Reformation. There are people that are sort of devoted to addressing that false gospel. And there's other false gospels. And so I think that, and I mean, even in the Reformed Church, we're seeing critical theory Mm -hmm. and, and I thought like if I'm not reformed but I thought if there's any church that's going to be isolated from a false doctrine it's probably going to be the reformed because it's just so laid out the guardrails but this critical theory snuck in on everybody and it's infiltrating everywhere and I think the reason for that is because it's it's sort of sneaky in that it's an answer to a real problem right I think everybody would agree yeah racism exists it's a problem um you know how that's going to extend to the language we use for like about in, is it institutionalized and all that stuff's a different conversation but you know but the definition of racism of course critical theory changes that definition and so i think what it is is as christians are in this moral panic over what we see in culture we want to we want to fight things that are bad, right? We want to fight racism. I think that people who are maybe adopting this, initially it can come from a good motive. It's like, okay, we recognize this is a problem. I'm just going to get on board with this, but it's, it's infecting everywhere because frankly, if you, if you don't, you get called a racist. You know, you're a racist if you don't affirm critical race theory, um, which is a secular and racist solution to the problem of racism. You can't solve racism with racism, which is what critical race theory does. But um, because of the social pressure, uh, especially if you're white, to speak out against any of that, it's just, I think it's just a mess. And I, I think we should be really worried about it, honestly. Well, good, because I am. Yeah, I, am. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's sort of like become, it just swept in yeah. like so quick. And mm -hmm. I think it's less obvious too, because of course, like progressive Christians coming around saying, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to deny the atonement. I mean, most 
conservative Christians are gonna be like, whoa, whoa. but you have somebody coming around saying like, we got to fix the racism problem. You know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy saying, no, nah, I think we're good, you know, <laughs> which is kind of how it sounds when you, when you're yeah. standing against critical race theory, but yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a big problem. I, I never dreamed that standing for the gospel would ever get you called a racist, but that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I I really thought that it was going to be the sexuality stuff and yeah, even transgenderism, which but is it definitely will. big. Yeah, that will be next though. As yeah. as church, if we see churches bend um, to critical theory again, I want to be very careful how I word this. We all agree racism is a sin. It's evil and it's wicked. Mm-hmm. So we're not at all excusing racism, but we're talking about the world's racist solution to racism that we're rejecting. Mm-hmm. But the problem with people accepting critical race theory is they're coming for the LGBT thing next because it's this critical theory as a general, at least the contemporary iteration of critical theory. It's, it's based on this intersectionality that has everybody divided up into groups based on their skin color, their ethnic background, their, how able they are, their gender, their, uh, their, you know, sexual orientation, all of these things are dividing people up. You can't, there will come a time when all the churches that may have been holding strong on LGBT, if they capitulate on the critical race theory, it's, they're going to capitulate on that too, because it's just the natural, it's the natural progression of critical theory. And we're going to see complementary fall as well because the whole idea that a woman would you know and I know that different and I, I'm not going to divide over this I think it's a secondary issue but it's coming for all of these these views if we if we capitulate on one I think yeah it, it's well so part of what I've been wondering about and, and noticing was just with the critical race theory capitulation like you mentioned is that like we've had, we've got a lot of people who, like I said, stood firm on homosexuality, but it's like they, they did it. There was still some hand wringing about it. And like, they didn't really like having to stand against the culture. I mean, who wa- I don't want to be called homophobic. They didn't like being called homophobic. Right. So they did it. They did it. They took the stand and they stood firm there, but they've been, it's like they're, they've been apologizing for the Bible ever since, or mm-hmm. they did it then. I'm so I'm really sorry. We just can't say yes to that. Like I promise God's really gracious otherwise though. Yeah. But like, you know, I know that feels really mean and we're trying to be so nice. And so it's like all it's the apologetic, like not the good apologetics, but like apologizing for God and for the, what the Bible says instead of actually being confident that no, it's actually the best thing. Like to say what yeah. it is is the best thing for you, for me, for all of us, to say it honestly, to say it confidently. And then that then so that with all the apologizing that went on. Now it's like, oh, this is an area that we can like be with the culture. We can say, look how similar we are. We have the same values. Like we care about the same things. Like, see, we're not so different. Like don't hate us. Yeah. I think that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, definitely. We've had, we've kept you for a long time. Do we have any like less, anything that we really, really need to ask? I'm looking at this. Um, we have this, we have like a really huge document of questions. <laughs> anything that you would want to add, anything that. Yeah, that we didn't ask that we should have. Well, you know, I think just my, if, you know, if I had a final word for the people listening, like don't get depressed, like there's a lot of depressing things happening in the church, but actually it kind of excites me because every time I see the gospel attacked on any front, whether it's critical race theory, progressive Christianity, NAR, whatever it is, um, this is actually exciting because it's, God is already dividing the sheep from the goats. And I think that Christians who kind of have that red flag and they go, this, this isn't right. Like this doesn't, bear witness with my spirit. This doesn't bear witness with what I read in scripture about God. Um, That's God strengthening the church. He's purifying the church. He's strengthening the church. I think that all of this cultural Christianity where it's been so easy and so comfortable to be a Christian in America, we're starting to see that not be the case anymore. And that's something we should actually be excited about because we know when persecuted Christians, like we're, we're not like legitimately persecuted here, but our brothers and sisters all around the world who are, when there have been interviews with persecuted Christians, the, jo- the depth of joy that they have is immeasurable. Uh, the, uh, I just read uh, a book that was talking about persecuted Christians, how they don't have any regrets about their persecution. They're, they're filled with joy about it. They're thankful to God for what they walked through and they wouldn't change 
that if they could. And so I think that we can take that as a cue to be excited about what God's doing. He's, he's basically, I mean, we know the, the Bible says he will send a great delusion for those who do not love truth. So our job is to love truth, stay in the word, stay in relationship with the Lord and, and stay on track in that sense, no matter what the world says about us or what they think about us. And I know that's hard to do when you have, everybody's got a megaphone from their living room through their computer, but, um, you know, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail and the church, the church is fine. We're going to be fine. And Jesus will prevail. Uh, and his bride, he will come for his bride. And we just need to keep our heads down, live peaceable and quiet lives, stay in the word and, and stand and speak up when our churches start to teach things that are a little bit off. And we, we just can't shrink back from that, I think. And on top of that, you can buy and read another gospel, which will help you practically get through this dark time for sure. And um, listen to Elisa on on her podcast online and uh, follow her. Um, I'm pretty sure that Nick knows how to do links to things. Um, oh yeah, he's holding his. He's he's here for us. So, um, well, I'm so honored and grateful that you were willing to be with us today. And I'm really grateful for this book and for your ministry. And I hope that uh, Christians really read it. And I, I agree. I felt as, as the world was burning this last week and people were crying, I felt guilty, but I felt strangely cheerful. <laughs> like. Mm. To not that things would burn down at all, right, but that um, God is God, you know, and He has always been God, and it, the church belongs to Him, and He can do whatever He wants, and it was never up to us in the first place. So that was the strange cheerfulness that came to me this week, and yeah. um, so I'm really grateful that you have been with us and. Uh, thank you for being on the Stand From Podcast. Oh, it was yeah. a joy. Thanks to all of you. That's the Stand Firm Podcast for this week. A big thank you to Ann Kennedy, Liza Koch, and Rolinda Greger for hosting this episode. And an even bigger thank you to Elisa Childers for joining us. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Thanks for listening. Matt, J.D., and I will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,